course, this was the 18th anniversary of 9-11 this past Wednesday. And after 9-11, on 9-16, September 16th, that following Sunday, preachers all over the country in churches that were largely filled, if you remember. I mean, church attendance went through the roof after 9-11. But many, if not most, of these preachers devoted that following Sunday to address that, that evil, that, that tragedy that occurred on that day. John Piper in Minneapolis called his church to turn away from their implicit trust in the American military might and our financial and national prosperity. Uh, he said that Americans, by and large, had taken for granted their own security in the world. And he said that 9-11 was proof positive of what the Bible clearly teaches, that such security is an illusory fiction. It's just one big illusion to think we have that kind of security. Our hope is not in our military. Our hope is not in our prosperity. Our hope is not in our, our health. Our hope is in the living God. Well, we saw last time in the first part of Jeremiah 7 in what scholars call the temple sermon because God has Jeremiah set up You'll see at the very beginning of chapter 7, in the gate of the temple, as the people, the worshipers coming in and out, and he is calling them to repentance for their veneer righteousness, their self-righteousness. And we saw that they, the people of God, Judah, was trusting in a, an illusory fiction. And what was that? You see that as he called them to repentance, declaring justice and judgment was coming. He says, do not trust, verse 4, in these deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were saying this, God's not going to judge us. We are the people of God's presence. We are the people of the temple. But nobody was listening to them, to, Je uh, to Jeremiah, as we we're going to see. So what should Jeremiah do in response to a people who does not listen to his preaching? Well, um, clearly you pray, right? That's what Moses did when he came down from the mountain and he saw the people engaged in false worship with the uh, golden calves. He went to God and he made intercession for the people. That's what Ezra did when he saw that the people of God were intermarrying with pagan people. He took it to the Lord, Ezra chapter 9. The first job of a spiritual leader is to pray. Correct? Well, look at me in verse 16. As for you, do not pray for this people. Did y'all know that was in there? Do not pray for this people. And just to make sure Jeremiah understood what God was saying. He, he says it another way. Or lift up a cry. Our prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Not only does he make it very clear in this verse, he's going to repeat that in chapter 11, verse 14. 
and in chapter 14, verse 11. But why does he call Jeremiah to preach, but not to pray? Man, that's a legitimate question. It's a hard one, but it's a question I think we need to consider. Well, let's try to work through this. First of all, God knows, God knew that Israel was not going to repent. And he knew that judgment was coming. We see that in verse 20. And so the preaching that he called Jeremiah to was to serve to expose the hardness of the hearts of these people. He was going to preach to them, and preaching exposes what a person really believes. Biblical preaching exposes what a person really believes. Because if it's biblical, it doesn't have to be a good preacher. It just has to be a biblical preacher. If it's biblical, it exposes what people really believe. And, and so Jeremiah's preaching was going to expose the hardness of their hearts. And it was also going to make apparent that God did not judge without warning. God did not and would not judge without warning. And remember who this book is going to be written to originally. Those who are in exile. Those who are experiencing the fruit of that judgment in exile. And it's as if there's a subtext here where Jeremiah is saying to them, you refused to listen before, are you going to listen now? But the crucial thing for us to remember, I think, is this. God's command for a prophet who was privileged with special revelation and with secret counsel on God's decrees, which we are not, all right? This is not a command for us today. This is not a command for us today because none of us have the privileged secret counsel that Jeremiah, a writing prophet, had. One of the biggest differences between the people under the new covenant and those under the old covenant is that we now have our high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. He ever lives to make intercession. And because Jesus always prays, we can always pray. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. In fact, we are given permission and even commanded. Listen to these words in 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For all people. So unlike Jeremiah, who was a writing prophet given special revelation, we are not to follow this. We'll never come to the place where a person is beyond prayer. But we do see here the condition of these people. And so we don't know about God's secret decrees. One thing we do know, though, here, the issue in Israel can largely be blamed on the breakdown of the family. Note in verse 17. He says, Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. 
the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. That is horrifying language. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. I think this has such contemporary relevance. I want you to note the family unity. Have you ever heard the statement, the, the family that worships together stays together? That's just not true. Because every family worships together. Every family has a God and a functional Savior they worship. These people in this family, they're on the same page with their worship. I mean, this is harmony right here. If you've ever seen anything, the children are involved. These aren't even rebellious children. These aren't rebellious teenagers. They're submitting to their, uh, their parents. They gather the wood. The fathers kindle the fire. The women knead the dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And, these, and they tell us that these cakes were probably shaped like the queen or had the insignia of the queen, the queen of heaven. Well, this is a picture of worship. It's idol worship, but it's worship. And, and these children grow up thinking this simply is the way it is. It's their normal. Whatever their parents worship, it's likely they are going to worship. Now, the queen of heaven here is likely the, the Canaanite goddess Asherah, which is interesting. It's called Ishtar by the Persians from where we get the word Easter. It's likely the, the case. But whoever it was... These families were harmoniously worshiping pagan gods. And, and, and that's so vital. I, here's the question I, as I was meditating on this. What, what God, what Messiah would my children, if they were pressed to answer this question, what God, what Messiah would they say our family worships? I mean, that's a vital question. It's a very important question. Not if we worship. If you want to see worship, go to a baseball field in the summer on a Sunday morning. We've been a part of that. We had to pull Seth out of it. We never went on Sunday mornings. We, we protested that, and the coaches eventually just started benching him. We paid the price for it. But every family worships. And this, these families in Judah are worshiping, and it's wreaking havoc. Notice in verse 19. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place. Upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground, it will burn and not be quenched. Note the consequence. God's anger, God's wrath, as well as themselves, as them provoking themselves to their shame. This latter point, I think, reminds us that 
false worship always abuses the worshiper. Because when he says, speaking of this language, is it I whom they provoke? He's referring to them. They are provoking themselves. The word there speaks of an action that brings hurt and shame. They are bringing hurt and shame on themselves because of the idolatry, because of the false worship. Yes, God is judging them, but they're bringing hurt on themselves. But then, in their self-delusion, and this is why this is so... I grew up in this. I grew up in this. You, in their self-delusion, doesn't matter what your moral compass looks out like through the week, they would come to worship on the Lord's Day. Notice in verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. They were coming to worship in Jerusalem even though through the week they were engaged in false worship. Now keep in mind, the burnt offerings were not intended to be eaten. When we studied the uh, Exodus, we saw that. The burnt offerings were intended to be completely devoted to the Lord. But the Lord says here that their burnt offerings mean nothing to Him. They mean nothing to Him. In other words, if you're going to worship on your terms rather than on my terms, just save the meat and have a cookout. That's what He's saying. Because your worship means nothing. And in 22, verse 22, the Lord gives some clarity as to why He says this. For in that the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice. And I will be your God. And you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I command you, that it may be well with you. So when the Lord saved the people of God out of Egypt, He did not immediately give them the regulations for the sacrificial system. Right? That's not what He did first. The first thing He did was what? He gave them the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He constituted them as a, as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, His Son, if you will, a corporate Adam, if you will, a macro Adam. Called to do what the, the first Adam failed to do in the garden. In other words, what Jeremiah is saying here is read your Bible in the right order. I didn't give the sacrificial system first. I gave the law to be obeyed first. In fact, the first 18 chapters of Exodus is all of grace. Before I gave the law, I gave grace. I redeemed you out of bondage. And then I gave you the law, not in order to be redeemed, but as an expression of your redemption. And so in Exodus, he's saying, look, get your order. It is grace, and then it's obedience as a response to that grace, and then the sacrificial system. The order is important. Grace, ethics, and then the sacrificial system. Why that order? Because our ethics will never, ever 
comport with God's holy and righteous standard. And hence the need for the sacrificial system. But the sacrificial system was intended for those who, yes, were sinners, but saw themselves as under the grace, the the redeeming grace of God, as evidenced by their contrition, their repentance, and their fleeing to God's provision in the substitute. In fact, note the number of times the word obey is found in verses 23 to 28. Verse 24. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. They got worse and worse from generation to generation. Next Sunday will be, and only baseball fans, uh, Dave, would recognize this, would be the fourth anniversary of Yogi Berra's death. And Yogi once said, you can hear a lot by listening, which I think is quite profound. Sometimes a man preaches and nobody listens. I don't know if you are aware of that. Um, I, tend to, I tend to know who they are, too. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it was true of Isaiah. God told him, they're not going to listen to you. It was also true of Jesus. He spoke in parables because their hearts were hardened And it's true of Jeremiah here, verse 27. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. That's horrifying. Kind of reminds us of that language this morning with Saul. God is silent now. God has has divorced himself from Saul. Truth has perished. If you don't steward truth, it perishes. It is cut off from their lips. Verse 29. Cut off your hair as a result. Cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. How would you like to be known as the generation of God's wrath? Now, one clear mark of godliness in that day, believe it or not, was baldness. Not natural baldness, all right? But... (laughs) Uh, Though there are guys that are naturally bald that are quite godly. I know some of them here in this church. Um, (laughs) But those who had intentionally shaved their head because it was a sign of despair and anguish over corporate sin. That was one of the, and that's why when Elijah was called ballhead, ballhead, and these kids make fun of him, he calls bears out and, and takes care of those kids. It, yes, they are attacking God's prophet, 
But they're making light of sin. They're making light of a prophet who is lamenting corporate and national sin. The problem here, that mark was largely missing in Judah. As seen here in verse 30. Now, starting in verse 30, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 8, verse 3. And we'll do this quickly. I'm not, I don't want to scare you here. But this section of Jeremiah, and we've already seen some low points. This is one of the low points in Jeremiah. In fact, I would venture to say this is one of the low points in the Bible. And that's saying a lot. Verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They were hedging their bets. It's kind of like the, if you go to Haiti today, uh, you will see, and I have taught down there, uh, pastors. And one of the things they deal with, and it's, 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 it's in every church, virtually every church down there, is voodoo. And so you'll have people that confess Jesus Christ as Lord, but then they engage in voodoo to propitiate the gods. And, and it's kind of like a belt and suspenders mentality. You know, the belt and suspenders person is the guy who wears the belt in case his suspenders breaks. And he wears his suspenders in case his belt breaks. So just in case Jesus isn't sufficient, we've got these other gods over here. And that's what they were doing here. They were hedging their bets. They were taking their idols made of uh, wood and stone and placing them in the temple. And it reminds us that what we believe matters. Sometimes you'll hear people say, I don't, doctrine means nothing to me. Theology means nothing to me. Well, what you believe matters. It, it, it matters between eternity in heaven with God and eternity in judgment, in hell. What we believe matters. And, and, and their wrong beliefs were leading to horrific behavior. Notice verse 31. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, notice, nor did it even come into my mind. This is a God who is omniscient. He's all-knowing. So this is clearly metaphorical language. But he's saying it is so horrific what they're doing. didn't even cross my mind a person could do that. This is horrific language. It's one of the most stunning and sick verses in the Bible. Topheth was the name of the high places. It, it literally means fireplace or oven. That's what Topheth means. It was the place where the people would take their children and cast them into the flames to propitiate the gods. Where did they learn that? Well, they, they learned it in Canaan, in the Canaanites. They have been warned, if you don't rid yourself of these Canaanites, you're going to, to worship their gods. Incidentally, I think this is a good place to... To divert here. That's why Genesis 22 is so important. In Genesis 22, God calls Abraham 
to lay a son on the altar. Now, Christians misunderstand this chapter all the time. Because you're saying that that's twisted. But actually what God is communicating in that chapter is the opposite of what we tend to take out of that. He knew that as they went into the land, they were going to be tempted to do that. Because the, the pagan neighbors did that. They would lay their, they would sacrifice their children to propitiate the gods. And so he calls the covenant head to put his son up on the altar. But the son recognizes that a dead son does no good to anybody because he's the seed of Abraham, who will be ultimately the blessing to the nations. And so he says, Father, where's the lamb? And Abraham responds, and this is so vital. God will provide himself the lamb. Do you see the point there? There's coming a day you will be tempted, Israel, to sacrifice your sons to propitiate the gods. And I cannot be propitiated by you. If I am going to be satisfied, if I am going to be propitiated, I will have to provide the lamb. And they had forgotten that sermon. They had forgotten that. And as a result, we read this nonsense. Um, in Leviticus, they had been warned not to sacrifice their children to Molech. King Ahaz sacrificed his own son in Second Kings. In Manasseh, you, you see with King Manasseh that he sacrifices his son. And, and you see it in Isaiah, Isaiah 57. And when Josiah reformed the temple which took place during the first six chapters of Jeremiah, one of the things he did was he tore down the high places. He tore down the high places of Topheth. But as we have seen, uh, external reform without circumcision of the heart means nothing. And so there were still these high places that had remained standing. And so this is going to be an issue throughout Jeremiah. Indeed, down in this valley... Within walking distance of the temple, these people are throwing their children into the flames. And I am so grateful we're in a culture that's more sophisticated than that, aren't we? Not really. Not really. Consider, and this is not a political pulpit, but even politics hits on issues that are thoroughly vital for the people of God, right? On September the 4th, Bernie Sanders was asked by a woman how he would deal with climate change. This sounds almost like a joke. And he replies, I kid you not, we need increased access to abortion to curb population growth in order to prevent climate change. Killing babies in utero is now the answer to climate change. So we're really no different. We're really no different than what they were doing. And note what God does with that mentality. Verse 32. Therefore... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. 
We have our own valley of slaughter. It's called Planned Parenthood. For they will bury in Topeth because there is no room elsewhere. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become waste. It's going to have effects even on covenant marriage. The land will become waste. This is a horrific prophecy because it foretells God's judgment even on the families in Israel. In a society in which children, uh, parents sacrifice their children, the family's doomed. We even have something added to that. We have even the redefinition of marriage. So we not only are sacrificing our children, we're redefining what marriage is. It's a scary place to be. Notice in chapter 8. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs. It's just, it's remarkable. The people are going to be slaughtered in the very place where they once slaughtered their children. One scholar said that their sanctuary would become their cemetery. Rightly so. And they shall be, verse 2, spread before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, which they have sought and worshipped the moon and all of these things. And they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. The punishment is fitting the crime. They did not value the bodies of their children. And so their bodies will be treated like fertilizer. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant, the remains of this evil family, in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. So removing the bones from the grave was like, it was a great insult. And, and it was often done by victorious invaders. Of course, we know who the invaders were, the Babylonians. There's so much uh, here that the Babylonians are coming. And it's a short time. I mean, if this is at the same time that we think uh, Jeremiah 26 was spoken, it's three or four years out. And, and the first round of this will be 605 B.C. The second round will be 597. And then third and definitive round where the temple would be destroyed, the, te- the, the king would be taken into exile, would be uh, 586 uh, B.C. Well, let's close this out. Um, it's one of, the, one of the disturbing aspects of, of this chapter, and, and it's quite disturbing, uh, is that it does not contain any explicit grace. Now, that's one of the, the difficulties. Of course, we recognize that in order to, to, to embrace grace and to celebrate grace, you have to understand uh, the, the true Uh, fallen condition, correct? But this chapter doesn't contain any explicit grace. And and the reason is simple. Uh, The valley of slaughter is the valley of hell, literally. Uh, The main New Testament term for hell is what? Gehenna. Um, Matthew 23, 33 is one example. Where is Gehenna? 
Well, in, in Jesus' day, it was the, the ravine south of Jerusalem where the, the, the refuse was burnt, and Jesus used that as a metaphor for the flames of eternal hell and judgment. Now, here's what's interesting. That word Gehenna and this word for Hinnom, the son of Hinnom, is the same word. It's the same word. And so when the New Testament refers to hell, it's referring to the very place that Jeremiah is describing in chapter 7. The valley of the son of Hinnom is the valley of hell. Of course, this is in, in time and space, and it, but, it, but it's a metaphor that speaks of something that, that is much, much more greater and eternal in scope. And that is what, at the end of the day, every sinner deserves. We are a lot more like these people than we are Jesus in our unregenerate state. That in our natural state, we are, as, we are closer to Adolf Hitler than we are Jesus of Nazareth. All right? And, and this is what every sinner deserves, except there is going to come a king. And this is what the old, old Testament is preparing us for. The Old Testament is showing us that even the best days were bad. The people of God need a savior to stop this cycle of nonsense and wickedness. And so there's a king that's coming, and this king is going to take that hell for us. But when God's judgment on our sin is satisfied in this king, get this, his bones will come out of the tomb. Like we see here in chapter 8, verse 2. But here, it's a picture of the curse. But when his bones come out of the tomb, that is God's signal that he is reversing the curse on sin and sinners. And that gracious promise is of reversal is actually seen, and we'll, we'll close here, if you would turn over to Jeremiah 31. And you know Jeremiah 31 is that promise of the new covenant that we would know from Jeremiah, for instance, Jeremiah 25, will be ratified by the branch of David. That's the language that is used of him by Jeremiah. He's the branch of David. He's coming from the tree of David. And this branch of David is going to come, and he's going to ratify a new and better covenant known as the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, is all, the entire chapter is about this new covenant. And notice in verse 38... I love this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now, he is saying this to people who do not deserve this, this promise of salvation. But that's what grace is. Grace is always given to people who don't deserve it. The days are coming when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. And the measuring line shall go out farther straight to the hill Gerib, and shall then turn to Goa. This, gonna be a, this, this holy city is going to be coextensive with the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, 22. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes. What's he referring to there? 
the son of Hinnom. That valley that we just read about. The whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be sacred to the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore. In the midst of the judgment, in the, in the midst of utter chaos, the curse on sin, comes a gospel promise. That even this place is going to be holy to the Lord. Holy like the holy of holies. It will be as set apart as the holy of holies itself. And that's going to come through a Messiah. Of course, we recognize that when he came, he accomplished redemption in full in an inaugural way. The first phase of this new creation project is spiritual. But when he returns, he will consummate what he has accomplished ultimately for us spiritually in a material and physical way. And so we live between the time of the already of that accomplishment, new covenant ratified by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and its consummation. And so what does that inform us to do? Well, it reminds us that we live in the overlap of the ages. And so we should not be shocked by the sin and wickedness that we see in our culture. It should grieve us. Not necessarily that we shave our heads, but it should keep us on our face in mourning and in intercession. But remember, because this covenant has been ratified, we fight this battle from a posture of victory. It's an already but a not yet. But it also reminds us we have a task to do. We have a task. Now, there's a place for, for picketing at, a, at a, a, you know, an abortion center. There's a place for that. Uh, there's a place for adoption. Uh, we do all of that. But we recognize ultimately that the way our purposes in the kingdom are going to ultimately be achieved is by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what's going to change people who would see abortion as normal into worshipers of the true and living God. And so as we close here, let's just pray that we will increase, we will become more of an evangelistic church, a praying church, a grieving church, grieving over the sin in our culture, but, uh, but, but seeing that grief as fuel to be on our faces. And let's pray that each one of us this week would have gospel opportunities. Let's pray for that. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. And the, the more we recognize how heinous our sin can be, the more we celebrate your grace. We look forward to the day when the valley, the son of Hinnom, will be sacred space. But until that day, we have work to do. 
Lord, we thank you that you have made us sacred space. We are the temple of the living God, as Paul said. And we pray that we would steward what you have accomplished for us and in us by your Son. That we would steward it with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only hope for this culture. So, Father, we pray this week as we go, we pray you would open up opportunities. We pray for opportunities to share the gospel. And, Lord, when those opportunities come, that we would be bold, that we would be gracious, that we would be loving, and that we would be faithful. And, Father, we pray that we could see this culture, one for Christ, by our gospel. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.